Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, if you uh, are using the blue ESV Bible in the seatbacks in front of you, you can find our text on page 910. On page 910, we're in Acts chapter 2, looking at verses 22 through 36. Acts 2, 22 through 36, page 910 in the, the Bibles out there. Uh, I've entitled the sermon, That You May Know for Certain. And the key words for our worshipers in training are resurrection, poured out, and Lord. As we begin this morning, I want to front load this sermon with some application. Last week, we saw Luke's description of some of the things that took place on the day of Pentecost uh, after the ascension of the Lord Jesus into heaven. We're told that the disciples of Christ on that day, as they were gathered waiting for the promised baptism of the Holy Spirit, they were gathered waiting and uh, there was a sound of uh, rushing wind and there were uh, tongues as of fire divided and distributed to those gathered and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they proclaimed the mighty works of God in languages understood by this multilingual crowd. This was a fulfillment of what many of the things that God had been promising all throughout the Old Testament that we see John the Baptist expect in his ministry in Luke, that we see Jesus expect in his ministry, and what he leaves the disciples with, his last words about uh, or his last words for them before his ascension revolve around the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit coming to bring about the, these promises. And we understood last week as we looked at Acts 2, the first part of it, that this pouring out of the Spirit signified several things. God's kingdom had indeed been established on earth through the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And he was beginning the process of expanding that kingdom to the ends of the earth, as he told his apostles that he would do in Acts 1.8. God's people would therefore no longer be comprised, at least nearly exclusively, of Israelites. We, see, we saw that when the Spirit is given, He would empower Jesus' disciples who proclaim with boldness the mighty works of God. And this begins here at Pentecost when, when uh, Jews, mostly Jews or, or Jewish converts from all, every nation under heaven had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks, culminating 50 days after Passover on Pentecost. They were there with speaking multiple languages that the disciples spoke, proclaiming God's word, emphasizing God's reversal of the judgment and the confusion that had happened at Babel in Genesis 11. And also emphasizes that God had rejected, was rejecting the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, in a sense, for their rejection of Jesus. And so it was now no longer through the nation of Israel that God would be working in the world, but through His church, more broadly speaking, which now included people from all over. So today in our sermon, 
we're going to see Peter continue what he begins uh, in response to the crowds. They think, hey, these guys are drunk. Peter begins to preach and tells them that, no, this, was ex- this, was what ha- this is what the Old Testament prophets expected. We saw that last week. And so today, beginning in verse 22, he will connect for the crowds and for us the ministry of the Lord Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension with the giving of the Holy Spirit and the exaltation of Christ in God's kingdom. And this is the point of application that I want to front load for us. Peter's sermon here is instructive. One of the, one of the mistakes that Christians and pastors and churches tend to make when it comes to their understanding and teaching about what happened at Pentecost and really what happens uh, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, is to focus on the work, role, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and exclude Christ. We become fascinated, fixated on the Holy Spirit, and we forget about Christ in much teaching that we we hear on this book. But contrary to what many assume to be the case, Uh, regarding what happens at Pentecost, who is the central focus of Pentecost? Who is the central focus for Peter? Is it the Holy Spirit? It is not. It is clearly the Lord Jesus. Immediately after quoting from Joel regarding the pouring out of the Spirit, he moves on to discuss the one who poured out the Spirit. He doesn't stay fixated on the Spirit. He stays, he moves to Christ. So let me ask you this. Here's the question of application before we even get to any of it. Does your experience of the Holy Spirit lead you, as it did for Peter, to greater experiences of Christ? If you have the Spirit... What we will see clearly this morning is that Christ is going to loom larger and larger on your horizon. So many today talk about the Spirit as if our reception of the Spirit is an end in itself. That it is the most important thing that one can have. And yet... The result of the Spirit's coming in Acts 2 and every other similar occurrence we have in Scripture is to lead to a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're going to evaluate our own or another's supposed experience of the Holy Spirit, there is one fundamental and initial question. It's not the only question to ask, but the fundamental initial question to ask is, does it lead to a making much of Jesus Christ. That is exactly what we see Peter do here. And so it is exactly what we shall aim to do in our sermon this morning. So he quotes from Joel in the first few verses of his sermon, ending in verse 21. And then he goes on. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God 
with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up and uh, uh, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I want to explore these verses under two headings this morning. Uh, First, in verses 22 through 24, I just want to see how Peter proclaims in simple, direct terms the facts about Jesus' ministry. In particular, his life, his death, and his resurrection. He, He states them plainly. But second, in verses 25 through 36, we're going to see the significance of what Jesus accomplished by his death and resurrection. Namely, he secured the Holy Spirit for his church and he was exalted to the throne of God as the rightful ruler over his kingdom. So we're going to see... Jesus' ministry laid out plainly in the first few verses. And then secondly, in 25 through 36, we're going to see the significance of of what Jesus did in his ministry. So look in the first place at verses 22 through 24, where Peter states plainly the facts of Jesus' ministry. He says, Jesus, men of Israel, he was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, things whose origin, Peter is clear, these things originate in God Himself. And their demonstration in our midst, Peter says, was plain. This is indisputable. He says, guys, you you saw the works, the wonders, and the signs themselves, and you know it. As you yourselves know. 
He challenges them deeply here. This was not done in secret. Jesus did not carry out his life and ministry secretly, but quite publicly, and they saw it. From there, he articulates the death of Christ in honest and direct terms. He says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and was crucified and killed by lawless men at the behest of many of those there listening to Peter that very day. There is no doubt a lot to unpack here. We'll try to be clear uh, and fairly succinct. The first thing to note is that Peter, in what he says here in verse 23, he makes no bones about it. God planned the death of Jesus. Now, of course, this is not the first time that Scripture tells us this. In Isaiah 52 and 53, we find what is... I think arguably the clearest foretelling of the Messiah's death in the Old Testament. There we read that the Messiah was to be smitten by God. The Lord would lay on him our iniquity. And most stunningly, we're told down in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. We need to let that settle and sit in our hearts. It was the will of God to crush the Messiah. It was according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge, according to Peter, that Jesus was delivered up, crucified, and killed. And of course, this was not something that happened to Jesus against his own will either. But God willed that Jesus died. The most heinous, sinful, wretched act in all of history planned by God Himself. And yet, Peter is also clear, without missing a beat, that God is not guilty. Peter says, who was it that crucified and killed the Messiah? That killed Jesus. He says to his listeners, it was you. You crucified and killed him. You you might have used the Romans to do it. And those lawless men are no doubt guilty. But don't think for a minute that you escape culpability here, Peter says. And here we are brought to one of the great tensions that we find in the Bible. One which despite our confusion over it often, our intrigue, the Bible is much more interested in simply stating the tension rather than fully explaining it and resolving it for us. What I mean is that the Bible is emphatic. God is the sovereign ruler of all things. And man is absolutely and completely responsible for his own actions. Pastors and philosophers have puzzled over these two claims for Years and years and years for centuries and beyond. And while I do believe that there are better and worse ways of of harmonizing these two statements, we need to respect and at some level accept the fact that the biblical authors 
we're generally content simply to state them as realities without perfectly explaining how they work together. And this is certainly true of Luke in this moment and Peter, right? So Peter speak, preaches a sermon. Luke summarizes the sermon in the words we have before us. And so Luke's goal here isn't to fully work out for us how these two things should be held together. He simply states them. God planned this crucifixion and the death of Christ But it was the Jews and the Romans together that were particularly guilty of carrying out this offense. And so we need to look with faith. Search the scriptures and understand how these things work together. But to understand that at some basic level we have to grasp God is sovereign, but he is not sinful. We are not sovereign, and yet we are. But the story doesn't end there with the death of Jesus, nor with God's involvement in all of this. God planned the death of Jesus, but in verse 24, who was it that raised Jesus from the dead? God did. God raised him up, Peter says, loosing the pangs of death, Because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by it. And that's another thing that we need to let sink in. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. You know, in a a fallen world where death wreaks havoc left and right, we, we realize quickly, it's hard to forget, impossible in fact, that death stops and waits for no man. For no one in this room will death halt simply because you might want it to. So, a question Are you afraid to die? Do you think about your death? often or ever? And and when you do, what what are the thoughts that, that attend that thinking? What are the feelings and concerns that attend that thinking? Is it fear? Are you anxious about the day that you die, whenever it may be? Are you worried? Each and every one of us in this room is marching toward an inevitable death, save for the preempting return of the Lord Jesus from heaven. But if he tarries, every single one of us is going to die. And when we die, in our own right, we would never have any deliverance from the pangs of death. In your own right, you should perpetually be held by that foul fiend. You would never escape its clutches. And yet, of the Lord Jesus, we are told, it was not possible for him to be held by it. For him to fail. In other words, for him to stay dead. 
You know, we said in, in uh, I think it was the very first sermon in Acts chapter 1, uh, we said the, that the fact that Jesus, right, Luke, he introduces, he says, I, I wrote to you, Theophilus, previously about all that Jesus began to do, implying that Acts is about what Jesus continued to do. And we said that this fact, that Jesus continues his ministry, that he began on earth, that he continues it now from heaven, it utterly separates the Christian religion from every other religion on earth. There is no figurehead or founder who can claim what Jesus does. Mohammed died. Joseph Smith died. Charles T. Russell died. Mary Baker Eder. They are all subject, just like us, to death forever in their own right. There is not a person who has started, founded, instituted any type of religion ever that died, that isn't still dead. Except for the Lord Jesus. It was by, his, by virtue of an indestructible and sinless life that Jesus could not be held by death. He died... And then he reclaimed his life and rose from the grave forever. Jesus will never die again. And he offers that life, that resurrection life, to each and every one of us this morning. Where he says, though you die, yet shall you live. And so Peter offers to us, the facts of the ministry of Christ. Namely, he lived a life before them attested by power and wonders, tested by God. He was crucified by sinful men, but then he was raised up by God since he could not be held by death. Look with me then in the second place where we see Peter begin to unpack some of the significance of these things. And here he begins to move from his, his earthly ministry to his heavenly one. In particular, he focuses on Christ's resurrection from the dead and his ascension, his exaltation to the throne of God. Right? Peter says, essentially, having done the will of God and so conquering death, Jesus was exalted to God's right hand in his ascension. And so he received power, or rather, he received the Spirit to pour out his Spirit on the church. And so there there are three realities in these verses that I want to consider with you that Peter highlights concerning the significance of the ministry of Jesus. The first thing that we see uh, in verses 25 uh, through 30. Two really is that the Old Testament anticipated this. This this wasn't brand new information. This was something expected. Peter quotes here from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. 
We saw a few weeks ago that Peter quoted from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 uh, when they were seeking a replacement for Judas. And similar to that, it's possible, though not not quite as likely here, it's possible that you you might read Psalm 16 and you might not quite understand or think immediately about how it connects to the Lord Jesus. Thankfully, if that's the case, if, if, if you've read Psalm 16 before and never consciously thought, that's about Jesus, Peter explains well here uh, why he makes the connection. He says, okay, follow me here, starting in verse 29. He quotes the psalm and he says, follow me here. David wrote Psalm 16. David then died and was buried. And he says, and very importantly, David stayed buried. In fact, he says uh, in verse 29, you can, his tomb is with us to this day. You can go see his tomb if you want. So he continues. So David's dead, still dead, still buried. But God had promised to him that a descendant of his would be on his throne. See that primarily in 2 Samuel 7. So, when he says, when David says that God would not let his Holy One see corruption, he wouldn't abandon his own soul to Hades, he was speaking about the resurrection of the Christ since David died and stayed dead and did decay. He says he's looking forward to the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 32, he makes plain We all witnessed this, that Jesus has been raised up. One significant aspect of what Peter is doing here is to help us to see that the Old Testament anticipated the resurrection of Christ. One thing that Acts is going to do, as we work through Acts, one thing it's going to do is to help us to read our Old Testament better. Right? Because if, if you don't grasp, if we do not grasp that Psalm 16 is first and foremost for and about Jesus, then we are going to struggle to understand it. And we're going to struggle to understand every other psalm and every other word in the Old Testament. We saw in, in, when we introduced Acts that at the end of Luke... Peter, or, uh, Jesus had spent much time with Peter. He had spent much time with the apostles explaining to them how all of the Old Testament, everything that Moses wrote, that everything the prophets wrote, everything we find in the Psalms, all of it is about Him. And Peter makes the connection with Psalm 69, Psalm 109. He makes the connection with Joel chapter 2. He makes the connection here with Psalm 16, and as we'll see shortly with Psalm 110. These psalms, for various reasons, they couldn't apply to David. Not fully, since he was merely a man, and he died and was a sinful man at that, and he stayed dead. Therefore, They are about the Lord Jesus before they are even about David. 
And yet, as we see how they apply to Christ, we get a fuller picture of Christ. We understand more of Him. We see more of Him in the Psalms. And we are more greatly acquainted with our Savior. So the Old Testament anticipates the resurrection. But a second issue of the significance that Peter raises for us here is that Christ's ministry, and here he moves on specifically toward his, to his ascension, he says that by his ministry, as he ascended and was exalted to the right hand of God, he secured the gift of the Spirit that he might communicate that gift to the church, which he had just done on Pentecost, which prompted this sermon. He says, what you're seeing, guys, is the result of Jesus' ministry and His securing of the Holy Spirit for His people. You know, there there are arguably three times that Jesus receives the Spirit in His life and ministry, according to Luke. His conception, His baptism, and His ascension or, or exaltation. We're told in Luke chapter 1, verses 33 through 38, or 35 through 38, that the Lord Jesus, um, he would be conceived miraculously in the virgin's womb. How? When? Why? When the Holy Spirit comes upon her, overshadowing her with the power of the Most High. So he's conceived in the power of the Spirit. Then in Luke 3, 21 and 22, we see that when Jesus was baptized, what happened? The heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And then here in Acts 2.33, he received the promise of the Spirit at his exaltation. So what, what, does, what, does, this, what, what does this mean? What do we do with these receptions of the Spirit that Jesus has here? Well, at his conception... And in all of his life, he lived in communion with God by the power of the Spirit who was with him the very inception of his human life. Jesus, as the the eternal, right, God, always had the Spirit, of course. But in the incarnation, Jesus at conception is, as a man, receives the Spirit. But then he receives the anointing of the Spirit at His baptism which set Him apart for His Messianic ministry where He would fulfill the Old Testament expectations for Israel's prophet, priest, and king. He was the anointed one, anointed by the Spirit of God. And then in Acts 2, having completely fulfilled His earthly ministry by living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death, and thereby conquering death once and for all, he secures the right to give his spirit to the church, which he does, as we noted last week, in this concluding act of redemption. Right, And so this, what Peter helps us to see here, is very important. Christ's work of redemption is, and there are different ways you could say this, but Uh, It's something like a singular and yet complex event, right? Redemption, viewed as a whole, is is you see the work of Christ. It's one thing. It's not a bunch of different things. But there are various aspects of it or, or parts to it, right? You have His incarnation, His sinless life, 
His sacrificial death, His victorious resurrection, His glorious ascension, and the fiery baptism of His church. While these are all distinct and separate events from one perspective, they cannot truly be separated out and they are better seen as intricately connected stages of His redemptive work. If you remove one of them, none of them have any meaning. Or aren't possible at all. We need to think more fully, holistically about salvation and the redemption of Christ, of His people. Too often we focus too exclusively on on maybe one part of it, right? We talk about His death and forget about His life. Or we talk about His death and forget about His resurrection. Or we talk about His life and forget about His death. We need it all. You know, the, the promise of the Old Testament, as we think about what Jesus accomplished in His ministry, what was the promise of the Old Testament? We, we said last week that, thinking about Ezekiel 37, it's that God would make His dwelling place with man. Right? Salvation isn't just that you get saved from your sins. It's not just that you don't have to go to hell. It's that God has made His dwelling with you. In Sunday school, we looked at John 14 briefly that, that God has made His home with you. All of this, this, this union of God and man bringing us together is accomplished by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And it's realized in His ascension to the throne of God where He sent His Spirit to make His dwelling in His people permanently and forever rather than in the physical structure of the temple. So maybe I'm beating a dead horse here, but it's important that we get this. What happened at Pentecost, it's the final act of, or the final stage of the redemptive act whereby the Lord Jesus communicates the benefit of redemption. Him, by His Spirit, communicates that always and forever to His church, the effects of which Peter reminds his hearers, that they were then seeing at the very time of speaking. So Jesus gets for us His Spirit and and pours out His Spirit upon us as we are brought into the church. Lastly, on, on, on this point, we need to see, and this concerns the significance Right of his ministry, namely his exaltation, but particularly how what it does for him in terms of sovereign rights over his enemies. We see this in verses thirty-four through thirty-six. Um, Peter says again, "Look, David, he didn't ascend to heaven. Right? He's a he's still dead. Not only did he stay in the grave, but he wasn't the one who ascended to heaven, but Jesus did." And then he quotes Psalm one ten. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter says, it's not David who ascended into heaven, but Jesus. And so, by virtue of his ascension, God has exalted him and has given him by power and reality what was already his by right. Jesus, the God-man, now sits at right God's right hand 
as the victorious, conquering king. The victorious man. The second Adam. The last Adam to, to sit on and rule, to sit on God's throne and rule over his kingdom. And in light of, of Christ's reception of this honor, this, this, uh, this vindication of his, his life and ministry, Peter concludes this. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. You know, the word made here may be troubling for some. Right? Is, is Peter saying that, that Jesus wasn't already Lord in Christ? That he was somehow made Lord in Christ? Is this some kind of uh, uh, adoptionism or something like that? That he, he becomes the Son of God or he becomes the Christ? Or, or what's going on here, Peter? No, the, the point of what Peter is, is, get, what Peter is getting at here is that that Jesus, in His resurrection, and even more pointedly in His ascension, Christ has arrived at His long-expected place of honor but at God's right hand. Right? What was His by right is now His in power and reality. It, as the victorious Man, and now he awaits the ultimate defeat of his enemies. Think about what he says here, though, the whole house of Israel. So let the whole house of Israel know for certain. Now, this is, we've already referenced Ezekiel 37 a couple times. This is almost certainly another reference to Ezekiel 37. 6 and 37, and if you're not familiar with that passage, it's the passage of the, it's the valley of the dry bones where God, Ezekiel prophesies over them, brings them to life, and, uh, and it says that they represent the, the house, the whole house of Israel. What happens in that passage is that God promises to reunite a divided kingdom. He reunites the divided kingdom of Israel by giving His Spirit so that there would be a renewal of life. And this is what He says in Ezekiel 37, 11. The Lord said to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. God then promises what He would do for them in verse 22. He says, I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. One king shall be king over them. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. And in verses 27 and 28, he concludes by promising to make his dwelling among them and to establish his sanctuary in their midst. So there is a a, a unification coming to God's people in light of what Jesus did in his his ministry, culminating in the pouring out of his spirit. The point in the way that Luke quotes Peter in Acts 2 here is that the Lord Jesus, in accordance with the hopes of the Old Testament prophets, prophets like Isaiah, Joel, and Ezekiel, Jesus has poured out His Spirit on His church and has finalized the inauguration of His kingdom on earth. 
It's here. And it is advancing and it is expanding and it will expand to the very ends of the earth. And we see that pictured in all of the book of Acts when it reaches Rome. And it just continues on from there as Jesus ultimately promises to be with his church to the ends of the age as they disciple all nations. And it all culminates for Jesus in the reception of a footstool. A footstool from God composed of all those who dared to contend with Him. You know, Pentecost, the point of Pentecost is not so much to tell us what we should expect in our own lives when we come to faith. Or or what we should experience in a, a normal church service. What personal redemption looks like. It it helps us to under the, understand that at some level. But, but more than that, the point of Acts in general, and in particular this event that happened on Pentecost, it is to show us how Jesus did in fact complete the work God had given him. He had completed his work of redemption. He had brought about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, which now would include Jews and Gentiles as Christ would be proclaimed in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And He is worthy to be hailed as Lord and Christ. And as we'll see next week in the response of 3,000 people on that day, it does have meaning for us. Pentecost does have meaning for us personally. They are called upon, the crowds, to respond. But before we look at their response, I want to close today by asking you this. What what is your response? How do you respond to this? Are you certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ? And more than that, more than an intellectual certainty that He is such, have you submitted your life to Him? Have you received Him as Lord and Christ? You know, we, we're all presented with a choice in, in this passage in Acts. The question is, are we, are we to be made a footstool for Christ? Or shall we dine with Him at His table? If you don't, if you don't already know Christ, if you're here this morning, came in today not knowing the Lord, Maybe your parents brought you here. Maybe you brought yourself here. Wherever you find yourself. If you don't, if you don't know Jesus, are you, are you going to sit one more day? Are you going to harden your heart once again against this coming King? Will you destroy yourself by being committed to rebellion against God? I pray that each and every one of us in this room would know that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And that we would love that fact. And that we would know that while His enemies shall be a footstool for Him, His friends, His beloved, are brought into His family. And so if you don't know Lord Jesus, if you don't know Christ, would you look to Him by faith, trusting Him to save you from your sins, to make you right with God? And if you do know Jesus, as I expect most of us in this room do, 
Are you grateful for the salvation that has been wrought in the world by King Jesus? What king would willingly lay down his life for his subjects? It's a question that many people have asked, but it's worth asking again. Seriously, what king would do what Christ has done? What king would bear the scorn and mockery of his subjects? All for your sake. Hardly one but Christ. Are you therefore like Peter, eager to make much of Christ? Brothers and sisters, let us let us love God. Let us love the Lord Jesus and love Him with great heartfelt affection. And let us now receive from Him once more His pledge of love.